Sometimes I look back on when I was in junior high, and I'm bummed I wasn't a little smarter with my money. Did you know that when I was in junior high, I could have taken $100 of birthday money, I could have bought Bitcoin, could have bought 100 Bitcoin for $100, 2011, I could have cashed out 10 years later in 2022 with $6.5 million. That would have been possible. Now, nobody was there to tell me at the time, hey, you should really uh, take some of your birthday money and buy this uh, fake money and, you know, it'll turn into real money someday and, you know, you should really do that. Nobody was there to tell me that and I don't fault anyone for that because, I mean, how would you have really known in 2011 how valuable that could have been? But I really look back and think, I could have done it. Think about it. I could have taken $100. I had $100, you know, birthday or Christmas. I could have taken it, bought something. It would have grown over time. It would have been a great investment. Now, um, not here to give you money investment advice today, other than it doesn't look like uh, if you like Bitcoin, you probably are a sad person right now. But other than that, here's what I can tell you for sure. God's word will back me up on this. The way you invest your time right now, as a high school student, in this season of your life, will pay dividends for good or for evil when you're older. I can say that for sure. That's really good investment advice, um, if I can say so myself. And uh, the reason I say that is not because just of my experience or things like that, because God's word is very clear about the use of our time, and he calls all of us in whatever stage of life, right? And for us, we're high school students. He calls us to make the best use of our time and to redeem the time. There's a phrase used in Ephesians 5, and if you've got a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's look at it together. Um, in Ephesians 5, Paul says, you need to buy back the time. That's what the word literally means. It means redeem. It means to buy back. And in our English translation, the way they did it is they said, uh, making the best use of the time. That's our translation, which is a fine translation because that's what it means. But literally, the word is to redeem or to buy back. The idea is you need to take every day, wake up, and say, God has given me this time today. He's given the same time to each one of us every single day. The difference is some people buy back the time and redeem it. Others waste it. Others never use it for productive ends. Others never use it for godly ends, and then it goes away. And even that will pay dividends over time, but for evil. If you're in Ephesians 5, check out verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. That's verse 15 and 16. So what is he saying? He's saying, watch out. Watch your step. He's saying, look around carefully. Make sure that your eyes are wide open. And after I say eyes wide open, you should be thinking of, what did the verse before say? Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So he's just given this analogy of waking someone up. So he says, okay, if you've been woken up by Christ, then keep your eyes open and walk carefully. The word walk, remember the word walk in Ephesians? This is the seventh and final time that Paul uses that word walk here. What does it mean? It means be careful how you live. Walk means live, right? So he says, you need to have your eyes wide open and live in such a way that you're living carefully. The decisions you make are careful, that are thoughtful. Not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 17 repeats something that was mentioned before. It says, therefore, do not be foolish. Don't be an idiot. Don't be stupid. Don't be a moron. But understand what the will of the Lord is. So he's saying, in all your ways, everything you do, in all your decisions, ask that question that we asked last week. What would God be most pleased with? We covered that intensively last week. But he says, 
Be careful. Don't be foolish. And that's a good warning for us because a lot of people are foolish, right? And if you're honest, you know that sometimes you've been foolish. I can look back at times where I've been foolish. And Paul just tells these Christians, hey, it's time to not be foolish anymore. Maybe you were foolish in the past. Maybe you wasted your time in the past, but let's not waste our time now. That's the call, right? It's very motivational here. But you might say, well, is this just some self-help sermon about, you know, working out or, or being healthy or like getting really smart or like getting in the crypto game? Like what, what, is the, what is the point here? What do you mean make the best use of the time? Well, verse 18 gives us a good insight on what he means by this. Verse 18 says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. Debauchery is a fancy Bible word. What it means is uh, reckless types of sin, right? Don't get drunk because that'll lead to a lot of different types of reckless sin. You'll commit other sin because you're not in control of your faculties and you're just going to do stupid stuff. You're going to say things you shouldn't. You're going to do things you shouldn't. Uh, That's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, which is very interesting that he puts those two things together. But he says those are very different contrasts. Those are on different ends of the spectrum, so to speak. He says you could give yourself over to substances and be controlled by those and do all the stupid things that you'll do and you'll waste your time. Or you'll be filled with the Spirit. Filled with wine versus filled with the Spirit. What does filled with the Spirit mean? Well, in the Bible, sometimes that phrase filled means something like this. If I said, hey, are you filled with sorrow this morning? You might say, yeah, I'm filled with sorrow. If you're really sad. What does that mean? Does it mean like someone came to your life and you, know, you drank a sorrow drink yesterday and now you're full of it and it's in you and you had a sorrow burrito last night? No, that's not what, well, sorrow burritos exist. That's true. Um, that make you sick. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, what does it mean to be filled with sorrow? Well, it means that like sorrow is the dominating emotion for you, right? It's like, I'm filled with sorrow. Every, every song I sing is a sad one. Every thought I have is sad. Right? What if I said, are you filled with rage? You might say, I'm filled with rage. I'm angry. What does that mean? Well, that means you're dominated by anger. That every decision and every word comes out and it's all angry, right? And it's affected by anger. Even things that you don't want to be. If you're filled with rage, that's how you're going to live. So when he says filled with the spirit, what he means is you need to have your life dominated and controlled by God's spirit. He's not saying be baptized by the spirit or sealed by the spirit. You know why? Because these people are already Christians, And we know that because, remember, Ephesians 1 says, you have been sealed with the Spirit for the day of redemption. So this is a command for Christians. This is not an evangelistic passage saying, hey, if you're not a Christian, be filled with the Spirit and get saved. That's called the indwelling of the Spirit. That's called the sealing of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit sometimes in the Gospel of John, being born again. That's something different. This is an ongoing command to Christians. But it's a confusing one, right? Because if I said, hey, are you filled with the Spirit today? You'd be like, well, I... It's kind of hard to define. What do you mean? What do I have to do? What do I have to say? Right? The idea is, am I dominated in my life, my actions, my words, by God's spirit? Is he winning? Is he calling the shots? Or something else? He's saying, if you're a Christian, you need to be filled with the spirit. What happens if you're filled with the spirit? Well, that's a command right there. Um, if you've got a Bible that's yours, it's a good one to underline. Be filled with the spirit. That's the main command. And then what he's going to do in the next three verses is modify that command. So he uses a verb there. Now he's going to use participles after, which is a different kind of, you know, grammar construction. But the idea is, it's ways that you do that main verb. He says, so be filled with the Spirit, and here's what's going to happen if you're filled with the Spirit. Five things. First one is in verse 19. You'll be addressing one another. So the first participle is the word speaking, right? If you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to start speaking. What are you speaking? Well, you're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What's the next thing? Next word right there. Singing. 
and making melody in your heart to God. Right? So we got a lot of things we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be addressing one another. Then we're supposed to be singing. And then the word making melody is another participle. So step one is you're speaking God's truth to others. And then step two is you're singing God's truth. And then step three, making melody in your heart. The word is literally psalming to each other. It's the word psalm, and you can just throw an ing on the end, right? Psalming to one another. So what happens if you're filled with the Spirit? You become a musical person, right? Does that mean that, you know, you start playing the band if you become filled with the Spirit? Well, I don't think it's saying you become musical in that sense, but it is saying this. You will start singing to God. And do you notice it doesn't say singing to God yet? What does it say? Addressing one another. That you're going to want to sing with other people about what God has done. If you're filled with the Spirit. Obviously, look what it says next. Singing and making melody to the Lord. So obviously it's to God. And it's with your heart. Which doesn't mean like, you know, you only sing on the inside and on the outside. Although some of you are good at singing on the inside, right? But you're not good at singing on the outside, so that's okay. But the point here is, you're singing with your whole heart. Like, it's not just like mouthing words. It's not just coming to church and just seeing, you know, lyrics. And blah, 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 blah. That's not the kind of singing he's talking about. You're filled with the Spirit. Your heart is going to be engaged in worship. That's what he's trying to say. Then in verse 20, what happens next? Another participle, the fourth one here. Giving thanks. So what happens if you're filled with the Spirit? Now you become a grateful person. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is for many of us, we're not giving thanks for all things and in everything. We're complaining about all things and in everything. Something good happens to you and you still have an urge to complain. Something good happens, like, well, it's not as good as it could have been, right? Um, that's a lot of our spirits. That's not your spirit if you are being filled with the Spirit. That's not what your heart's going to want to do if you're filled with the Spirit. And it says next, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's a word that people don't like, submitting. I don't want to submit to anyone. I want to be my own boss. I want to be my own. I'm not going to let someone else call the shots in my life. Well, if you become a Christian, and if you're walking in the Spirit, or you're being filled with the Spirit, you're following His direction, guess what type of person you become? You become a more submissive person. That doesn't mean you can't be a strong person. It means that you take your will, and you bow to other people's will. You say your preferences before mine. You become a selfless person. That's another word for being submissive, to be selfless, to be all about the needs of the other. When you got two friends that are in a disagreement about where to go for lunch, to say, well, I'm submitting. Whatever you want is okay. I'm not going to insist on my own way. Or it could be something more serious than that. It could be something between you and a sibling or you and your parents. What kind of a person is walking in the spirit? Well, a submissive person, one who's good with authority. That's why, for some of you, the easiest way to tell if you're walking in the Spirit is if I asked your parents, hey, what kind of a kid is your kid right now? If they're like, oh yeah, they're really, they're really growing and they're really being more respectful. Okay, well, that's a good sign. You're probably walking in the Spirit. If I get the other response, oh, actually, they're becoming way more rebellious. They're fighting against me all the time. Well, that's not a good sign because this text says very clearly, what happens when you're walking in the Spirit? What happens if you're filled with the Spirit? Well, then you become more submissive to one another. Why? Well, out of reverence for Christ. Out of fear. Of, the word is actually phobos, right? Fear, where we get the word phobia. Out of fear of Christ. Does that mean we're scared of Jesus? That's not what he's saying. He's saying you got to recognize when you think about what Jesus did. Think about what Jesus did for a second. Think about how he came to earth and put your will above his. Think about how he took the cross for you. He didn't have to, but he chose to. Why? For you, for your sake. When he was in the garden and he was praying to God, he said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus submitted, and he's saying, out of fear and reverence for Christ, after what he did for you, 
We need to look at what Jesus did and say, I need to be submissive to the Christians in my life too. I need to put their needs first. I can't say, who are you to tell me what to do? I need to say, well, Jesus is someone who can tell me what to do. And he says to be submissive to one another. A lot of commands there, a lot of participles, the five participles, speaking, singing, psalming, thanking, and submitting. That's what happens if you're filled with the Spirit. That's why this sermon, I don't want you to get it wrong. I do want you to wake up every day. It's what I said before. I want you to wake up every day determined to make the best use of your time. But if some of you do that and think, okay, this is just about me being a better athlete, or this is just about me being smarter, this is just me being a better musician, that's not what I'm saying. What this is about is saying, I'm going to do what God's Spirit wants me to do. And this is not just you trying really hard. God's Spirit filling you is the empowerment that you need to actually live for God. Because none of you can live for God. I can't live for God. I could try, but I'd fail. Unless God's Spirit is empowering me to do this. So that's encouraging in this passage too. A lot to say here, but the first point that I want you to write down from verses 15, 16, and 17 is this. I want you to spend your time carefully, not carelessly. Those two words, carefully versus carelessly. You need to be careful. What does that mean? Well, it means that in your decisions, in your actions, that you're watching your step, that you're not just coasting through life, right? Most teenagers are just coasting through life. There's a lie that you've been told that, you know what, high school is just for you coasting and doing whatever you want, right? Then you can get serious about adult life. You can get serious about God. You can get serious about real life later on, maybe after college. That's, that's a lie, I was, giving a, I was gaining a deeper appreciation for people who were trying to shave off some seconds because I was watching this uh, Netflix documentary about Formula One racing. Has anybody seen the Formula One racing thing on Netflix? Yeah, crazy, right? These guys are going 250 miles an hour. They're, they're banking at these turns. They're, they're going 200, and then they're stopping down to 60 like instantaneously. It's super impressive, right? And the scary thing is crashes happen all the time. Sometimes cars just shut down and they hit something the wrong way and maybe the fender kind of goes over the line a little bit and hits the gravel and then boom, immediately, like the car goes flying, the wheel falls off and these guys are just getting thrown. It's crazy. Any little thing gets them off track. They're never coasting. They never think about that. And even when it comes to when they're not in the race, I think about their pit stops. What these cars do is they like, they'll go into the pit lane, they'll go really fast and then they'll stop They'll be going like 45, 50 miles an hour, and then they'll stop immediately. And what they do is they jack up the car, and in a matter of like two and a half seconds, they change every tire, and then they just like, when they drop the jack off, they're running, and then it goes like 70 miles an hour out of the pit lane. It's insane. These cars do it so fast. And they're super committed to not wasting any time. And even when they're not racing, they're always committed to not wasting any time. Do you know, God's word says that the Christian life is a race. It's a race. We're not called to coast through our Christian life. You're not even called to coast through your Christian life when you're in high school. Christian life is a race. Hebrews 12 says we're running a race. When Paul was about to die, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have ran the race. I did it with endurance. I've been running for God. I'm not coasting. All this starts with you saying, I'm going to be committed, no matter what anybody else is doing, I'm going to be committed to learning wisdom from God. Do you notice that word comes up? You see that in Ephesians 5? Right here in verse number 15. And then again in verse 17. Right? Be wise, not unwise. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. This idea of wisdom comes up. And I want to turn to the Old Testament to see where this comes from because I think this will be really helpful for you as you consider what does it look like for you to not waste your time. So turn to Proverbs chapter 2 with me. Turn to Proverbs 2. 
We're going to actually look at two passages in Proverbs today, so we're going to stay there um, for a little bit today. Because this passage, you might not see it initially, but I think Paul's pulling from the Old Testament book of Proverbs a couple times. Even when he quotes, do not be drunk with wine, he's quoting a proverb. So we'll look at that later. But Proverbs chapter 2 is helpful. Here's why I think it's helpful. Because your stage of life right now, you've got so much ahead of you that you're looking forward to. You got plans, you got college, you got things after college, you want to have families, you want to work, you got, you know, you want to travel. You got a lot of things that for you seem like they're in front, right? And that's true. And that's all all those things can be good things. Okay. But Proverbs 2 says from a father to a son, he says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom. And inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it as, with, as for hidden treasures, then, then and only then, you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. That's what you need. It doesn't matter what you're going to do after college. It doesn't matter um, where you go. That's what you need. You need wisdom from God. There's a big difference between teenagers who decide, as they're teenagers, I'm going to seek God's wisdom, and people who don't decide that, who suffer the consequences for the rest of their life, and who wished they could go back to your time and be a sophomore again, or be a freshman again, or be a senior again, or a junior again, because they wish they could sit in your seats again and change how their life turned out, according to God's wisdom. You need to choose. That's the best investment advice I can give you. You need to choose to seek God's wisdom right now. Look what it says next. Look at verse number six. Check this out in your Bibles. Proverbs 2, 6. He says, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes understanding and knowledge. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. So who does God want to give wisdom to? The people who are seeking him. He doesn't give it to people who don't seek him. He's holding up for the people who are upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Those of you who are seeking God and trying to do what's right and choosing not to plagiarize at school, those of you who are choosing not to clock in or clock out early to pretend like you were at work, those of you who are walking in integrity, not cheating, not stealing, he says, God's a shield to you. You think you'll miss out because you're not cutting corners like the rest of the world. God's word says, no, it's the opposite. You're being kept safe. God will keep you safe. Verse number eight says, God is guarding the path of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Is then, you will understand righteousness and justice and equity in every good path. You will, and take that inversely. You're not going to understand the right way to go. You will, you'll just be stuck and depressed and anxious and scared if you are not seeking God's wisdom because you won't know what to do. Next, verse 9, verse 10. It says, For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you, and understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil. That, that's the, the thing that happens next. If you're changing your attitude, like I, I see a lot of steps in this passage, right? If you want to write them down, the first step is this attitude adjustment. He says, my son, seek wisdom, right? If you can start by making an attitude adjustment to say, okay, I'm going to seek wisdom. Then the next step is, he says, well, then you're going to start to understand the fear of the Lord, right? If you change your mind and say, okay, I'm going to seek wisdom, I'm going to seek what God says, and then you do that. So you'll understand the fear of the Lord. Then what happens next? Then you start walking uprightly. Right? That's what he talks about next. God is there for the people who are walking uprightly. And then, here in verse number 12, delivering you from the way of evil men. So then what does God do next? 
If you seek wisdom first, have that attitude adjustment, say, I'm going to seek wisdom. Then you understand the fear of the Lord. Then you start walking uprightly. Then the next thing that happens, number four, is that you will be protected from the sin that other people are doing. You won't engage in that sin. And you might say, well, I don't know if that feels like protection. Well, it is protection, because keep reading. It says, for men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. If you choose today, I'm going to seek wisdom. I'm going to understand the fear of God. I'm going to walk uprightly. I'm going to not engage in their sin. Then the next thing that happens is you'll also avoid the consequences of their sin. That's five steps for wisdom right there that are very clear from Proverbs chapter two. Some of you will listen, some of you won't. Some of you will take that investment advice, others of you won't. I want to just encourage every last person, take God's wisdom advice. Your life will go better. Like everything about your life will go better um, in, in the grand scheme of things if you do what God wants you to do. This isn't just about you, by the way. Um, everything here has been presented sort of selfishly, like, hey, it'll be better for you if you seek wisdom. You know, Colossians 4 says it's not just about you. One of the reasons you need to walk in wisdom if you're a Christian is because there are people watching you. Colossians 4, 5 says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. So same idea, but now he puts it in the context of there's all these non-Christians that watch you and they know you as the Christian and they're either gonna see you live righteously or foolishly. You understand that if you live righteously before other people, that takes away a lot of their excuses. They might come up with more for not repenting, but like, you're, you're not, um, you're certainly not helping their cause by you walking foolishly. So it's not just about you. Remember, even Ephesians 5, remember last sermon? The idea was like, you're exposing the sins of others by your righteous life. Same idea here. Walking in wisdom towards outsiders. What does that do? It, it sets you up to have opportunities to share the gospel. Your walking in wisdom is a huge deal for non-Christians too. So I want you to think, how can we apply this right here? How can you spend your time carefully and not carelessly? Well, there's a thought that the New Testament gives to you at your age and in your stage of life that's a helpful thought. And here, here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 7 says that if you're single, and by single, we don't mean not dating, right? By single, we mean not married, okay? Which, by the way, you know, you know we're about to start that family series and if you're reading Ephesians, you're like, wait, the next one's about husbands and wives. And Oh, man, what is, it? is John going to do a dating thing? Yeah, I might do a dating thing. Um, but anyway, what's really important about the Bible is it says there are two classes of people. Three, technically, if you want to call it. There are married and there are unmarried. That's the three. And then, I guess, widows. But they're unmarried, too, right? So, but this Bible kind of talks about them a lot. So let's put them in a different category. You've got single and you've got married, and then you've got widows or widowers. So those are your three categories. So everyone falls into one of those three categories. So don't say, oh, I'm not single because I'm dating. No, no, no. Bible still calls you single, right? Guys, she's just as single. It's, never mind. We'll save that for another day. Sorry. We're, we're not going to talk about that. Um, so here's what I'm talking about. Here's what I'm actually really getting at. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7 says, if you're single, listen to this. This is Paul talking. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties, Okay. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. So you're unmarried, right? you don't have a husband, you don't have a wife, you don't have kids, guess what? You can spend your worries, your anxieties on serving God. You can make your time about serving God. You can make your days about serving God in a way that you can't when you get married. He says he's anxious about the things of the Lord 
and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So it goes both ways, right? It's not just for the guys, but it's also for the ladies, right? If you're unmarried, right, take that as, that's a good gift from God right now, but here's what you're supposed to use that good gift for, serving God. There's things that you can do that you can't do when you're 25, simply because of your stage of life. And that's what Paul says. And he's telling some of these Christians who um, don't know if they should get married or not, he encourages some of them, hey, if you don't want to get married, don't. You can serve God better as a single person in many ways. I'm feeling that this weekend because my wife is on women's retreat and I've been having to take care of Eden. And like, I realize I don't know how to take care of this kid. You know, like I need my wife to, to, to do this. And then like, I got interest divided. It's like I went to you know, Mod Pizza with some people last night and it's like, we're we got to go. Like She's got to go to bed and I can't stay. And there's, there's conversations I can't have with you. Why? Because I have a daughter right? Because I got to go home. I got to get here. I got to go there, right? Uh, that you can't. Right? I want you to identify what those are, right? That's my point today in this sermon. What are the things that you can do as a high school student that you can't do when you're 45? Thought of some. There are people that have to talk to you and have to sit next to you for hours every day at your school that you will lose the opportunity to talk to them the day you graduate. There are people at your school that need to hear the gospel from you that you will miss the opportunity if you waste these precious years. You go to a job, or you go to college, and you won't have the same people, and you'll miss the opportunity to talk to them. Don't, don't miss that opportunity. Many of you have more time to serve. I was talking to Pastor Doug last week. He's like, hey, you got to ask the high school students to serve in kids ministry on the weekends. I'm like, really? Why? It's like, well, we're missing a lot of people. We need people to serve in kids ministry on the weekend. If you want to step up and serve, that's a great way to do it. I mean, go talk to Lillian Francisco. Talk to Pastor Doug. Find someone who works in kids ministry and just tell them, I want to serve. How can I serve? They need extra people to help. That's a great way that you could serve. Would it sacrifice an hour and a half? Yeah, it would. But it'd be a great way to serve God in a way that you can't do when you have three kids. You can't do it because you're like, well, I got the kid. I can't just, I don't know what to do. Now you can. The STM Texas we've been talking about. You know how many leaders have told me they want to go to STM Texas? <laughs> Not because they don't want to go, <laughs> but because they can't go. They're working. They've got family. Like, you know how many, you know, students have said they want to go? Like 53, right? So, so I'm going to really, you know, leaders, we got to talk about that. Um, it's okay. We'll bring like summer interns and stuff. It'll be fine. But here's the point. The leaders can't do it. Now, if I asked, hey, would any leaders love to just like have no responsibilities for the week and go? I bet they'd all say, oh, let's do it. I'd love to serve the Lord like that. But they can't. Why? Because they're married or they've got jobs or they've got other things that tie them down. You have less of those. Even if you think, oh man, I got AP classes. I got sports. I know you all have things that tie you down. I'm not saying you're not busy. I'm not saying that. I know many of you are busy. But you have an ability to serve the Lord in ways that you won't later on. So make the best use of the time. Redeem the season. Your life look, will look different soon. So walk in wisdom. Now, it's not just walking in wisdom and being a smart guy, right? He says, back in Ephesians 5, he says, make sure you're being filled with the Spirit and not drunk with wine. We've got to deal with that. What does that mean? Um, here, here's one simple way to put it, and this is point number two. I'd love for you to write it down. By the Spirit, not substances. That's what he's trying to say. 
He's saying you're going to be controlled by something. And as a Christian, you need to give yourself over to be controlled. The, the word be filled with the Spirit, it's a passive imperative. Passive means you're not active, it's not you're filling something, right? you're being filled, passive, but it's an imperative, right? command. So be controlled. That's a passive imperative. Be something. Be controlled by the Spirit. How do you be controlled by the Spirit? Right? Not substances, right? Well, what's with substances, right? Well, the reason I use that word is because um, I'm thinking that most of you are not uh, big wine connoisseurs. I'm just guessing, right? I hope you're not, you know, just excited to go to Napa and Temecula and go taste the wines, right? You're probably, that's probably not your vibe right now. Like even if you're illegally drinking alcohol, you're probably not saying, you know what? You know what I want to do? I want to go, uh, you know, check out all the wines. That would be really cool. Probably not, okay? But here's what he's trying to get at. Uh, you give yourself over to substances and being controlled by them, you will walk into enormous paths of sin that you never meant to walk down. You will walk down a path that will be so destructive that you, you never wanted it to be that way in the first place. This be controlled by the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. I mentioned this before, but being baptized or indwelled or sealed, that's a different thing. That's a past reality for you if you're a Christian. Being filled with the Spirit or being controlled by Him is a present reality. How do you be filled by the Spirit? Well, step number one is you listen to the Spirit's words. You know where the Spirit has some words that are written down that according to Second Peter chapter 1 were written by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit? It's God's Word, the Bible. How do you be controlled by the Spirit? Step one of that is all, you just got to be in the Bible. And not just in it and just reading and say, okay, I read it and done. But saying, I'm going to have my life guarded and controlled by whatever the Bible says. If God's Word says, hey, if I'm filled with the Spirit, I got to submit to one another, then I'm not going to be a selfish person anymore as much as I can. And I'm going to rely on God's Spirit to grow me in that. God's Word says, I need to change my priorities. Well, then I need to change my priorities. I'm just, I'm, we're going to do that. That's what it means to be submissive and controlled by the Spirit. You got two subpoints here. It's because I want to tackle both of these topics: substances and the spirit. Um, two controversial topics. Um, two statements I got for you. These are not imperatives; they're just statements. But the first statement, I'd love for you to write down. First subpoint about substances. Substances do two things: substances make you reckless and stupid. Okay, there you go. You didn't need a Bible lesson for that. But substances make you reckless and stupid. Um, I told you that he's quoting the Bible here. When he says, do not be drunk with wine, for that's debauchery or dissipation. Um, he's saying, don't give your body to be controlled by a substance. In our terms, whether it be you drinking alcohol, you getting drunk, right? you getting high, you smoking. Don't, don't give yourself to that because that will control you. And you will sin in ways that you didn't think that you were going to. And it started with you walking down that path. So he says, don't do that. Don't be drunk. I said, this comes from Proverbs. You're probably all in Proverbs chapter 2. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 23. Check this out. Look at what he quotes here. Proverbs have a lot to say about alcohol. And again, the reason alcohol comes up in the Bible so much is that's the main substance that people were abusing back then. There were other substances. There's a phrase, pharmakia, that's used in the scriptures to talk about these drugs that people would take uh, as they worshiped. And by the way, that's an interesting um, point that I forgot to make earlier. But 
I think one of the reasons why Paul tells them, hey, don't get drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit, is because some of them in their pagan past thought, you know how I could get really excited about worship and church? Is if I got you know, high before, and if I got drunk. And if I came into church drunk, I'd be so much happier and so much more like worshipful. He says, that might be how you worshiped in the past, but that's not how God tells you to worship. I know that's an odd thought. You're probably not expecting people to come to church drunk to you know, worship better. Uh, but again, I guess our country is a big country. You can find churches that do that. Um, they talk about being drunk with the Spirit and they're acting like they're out of control. It's all ridiculous stuff. Um, but back to this. This is where Paul gets this from. Proverbs 23, look at verse 29. Check it out in your Bibles. Proverbs 23:29. Ask the question, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? They don't even know where they got hurt from. Who has redness of eyes? Verse 30. Those who tarry or stay long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. People who get excited about alcohol. People who try, oh, they're excited. I want to go more. I want to try this. I want to try that. Oh, I haven't tried that. Have you tried this? Have you tried? That's the people who have woe, sorrow, strife, complaining, wounds without cause, redness of eyes. So he says, don't look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup. Which again, for them, was, that was the temptation. For you, substances might look like a different temptation for you. In the end, verse 32, it, it bites like a serpent. It might go down smoothly, but it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. You ever been bitten by a snake before? I have not been bitten by a snake, but you could imagine. Coming up, bite you on the back of the leg, fang you. You've got to pull it out. Someone's got to suck the poison out, right? Leg starts to swell, right? Comes out of nowhere, right? My dad has a phrase. When I can't find something, when I was a kid, he says, well, if it was a snake, it would bite you, right? If it's right in front of you. He says, okay, you get excited about alcohol, you get excited about substances. Does it make you feel good for a while? He says, well, yeah, it might go down smoothly, but in the end, it bites like a serpent. Stings like an adder. Verse 33, your eyes will see strange things, and your heart will utter perverse things. You're high, you're drunk, right? Well, your heart will utter perverse things. You'll say things that are evil that you probably wouldn't have said otherwise. Verse 34, you'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea. Right? What does it look like to get so seasick that you're just tossed back and forth? It's like you're laying down on a boat, totally seasick. It's like one who lies on the top of the mast, Right? You can imagine a ship, right? the most stable place, I guess, would be the lowest place. But physics would tell you the higher up you get, the more you sway back and forth. The highest point of a boat is a mast. It's like lying down on the top of a mast of a boat, going back and forth. You, I mean, you're just puking seasick at that point. It says that's what it's like. If you're giving yourself over to alcohol, you love it. Which again, I, ho- I hope for you, um, these are things that, you, know, you don't love because you don't know yet. Again, it's illegal for you to drink alcohol. So if you're like, well, is this in the Bible they drink alcohol? Well, um, it'd be illegal for you to do so. so it'd be sin. But even this kind of gives you a picture of, of what you should make a future conviction, right? what you do with something like this. It says, they struck me, verse 35. You'll say, but I was not hurt. They beat me and I didn't feel it. When shall I awake? And the classic question, every drunk, every alcoholic, I must have another drink. Right? I need more of this to make me happy. Some of you say, well, I'm, 
I'm glad I've never gotten drunk. I'm glad I'm you know, not addicted to alcohol because that does sound kind of rough. Well, verse, 20, or verse 1 of the next chapter is for you because this is how some of you are. Some of you um, are, are not rebellious enough to go get drunk, but you're just rebellious enough to want to go get drunk. Okay, a lot of you fall into that category. Verse, 20, verse 1 says, Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. Right? Some of you just need to hear that. You need to stop putting people on a pedestal who are addicted to substances. You need to stop it. By the way, a couple things for you just to think through when it comes to alcohol. Um, you might ask the question, what about alcohol in the Bible? Wasn't there alcohol in the Bible? Didn't Jesus turn water into wine? Um, yeah, he did. Was it alcoholic? Yep, it was. But here's just some insight on how alcohol was made back then. You might not know. What they would do is they would make a paste, and then they would dilute that paste uh, by like three or four times the amount of water than they'd do to the paste. There are ancient writings about people who are insane alcoholics who take it and mix it one to one, one part paste, one part water, right? and it would be super alcoholic, but it wasn't that alcoholic. The process of distilling alcohol didn't come along until the 8th century. So the things that you know of as like hard liquor, you know, like vodka or like whiskey or things like that, that's like hard liquor, um, that didn't come around until the 8th century and, and past that, right? So by the Middle Ages, you started to see stuff like that. Um, but in the Bible times, they didn't have that. And there's a guy, a scholar named Robert Stein, who wrote an article called Wine Drinking in the New Testament, um, published a long time ago in the 70s, but it's a very influential article. Um, and what he said about the alcohol of the time of Jesus was it says it would have taken 22 cups of wine in order to consume the large amount of alcohol and two martinis today. So 22 cups of wine, normal wine, right? There's also something called strong drink in, in the Old Testament, which is just a stronger version of that wine. Uh, it would have taken 22 cups of that to get just as drunk as a person could get today with two martinis. And guess what? Most people who have martinis don't have two. Right? You have a lot more than that, more than two drinks, Right? So let's call 22, let's call that four drinks, right? Most people today, if they're going out and going to get drunk, they'll maybe drink five, six, seven, eight, 10, 15, right? Could go up that high. Um, it would have actually been impossible for you in ancient days to get that drunk unless you were just like, like a camel drinking this, this alcohol. It was a lot more like kombucha, um, like 2% alcohol. Yeah, black label kombucha is probably the closest thing we have today to ancient wine. I know it's made differently, um, but alcoholic level, that's pretty similar. Um, he said in that article, you would have bladder problems before you would get drunk. <laughs> so it's possible, right? You could. And that's why the process in the Bible, these people getting drunk, is it takes a long time. You tarry long over wine. My point in saying this is it's so much easier and faster today to get drunk. Right? One bottle of wine today would be, again, like... 10, 15 bottles of the stuff that was uh, drank at the time of Christ. Another verse for you to write down in Proverbs. Proverbs 31, verse 4 um, says, It's not for kings to drink wine or for, kings to, or for rulers to take strong drink, lest you forget what's been decreed and you pervert the rights of the afflicted. But then he says, Give strong drink to those who are perishing and wine to those who are in bitter distress. Like there's a time that's appropriate to give people hardcore substances to change their, their, their thinking and it might dull their senses. There is a time for that. When's the time for that? Well, if they're perishing. Right? 
that's why for some of you, you know, who've got grandparents or great-grandparents who've died, you might notice at the end of life, they're getting really hardcore drugs that do mess with their head. He says, there's a time and place for that, but not now, not for you. Not for you if you're a king, not for you if you're a ruler, not for you if you're a teenager. Because here's the thing, it's hard enough for you to live the Christian life sober. Don't go make it harder by being drunk. Not only is being drunk a sin, clearly according to this passage, but also it's just not helpful. First Peter 4, verse 7 says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And he says the next chapter, be sober-minded and be watchful for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's hard enough to live the Christian life sober. It's harder than any kind of drunkenness, any kind of substance. Some of you laugh your way through what I just said and you doubt it, you don't believe it. Right? You think, okay, yeah, that's what you're supposed to say. Think I'm I'm for having fun. Well, I want you to know that God is actually not against fun. He's not against pleasure. Proverbs or Psalm sixteen eleven, God says that your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God has something better for you. The cheap alternative of going out and getting drunk or getting um, changed by substances is not what God intends for you. It's not what's best for you. It's not what will make you happy. Psalm 63.3 says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So God has something better than all of that. So even if you're a completely selfish person who doesn't care at all what God says, what I said is still true and it will still be proved true. And if you try the opposite, it will be proved true to you and you will come to the same conclusion. You'll just come to it the hard way. Now, that's maybe an intense way of putting it, but it's the truth. God has better things in store, which is, by the way, evidenced in the next thing. When he says, be filled with the Spirit, that's the kind of exciting thrill that he's talking about. Be filled with the Spirit. Live your life in a way that you're controlled by God's Spirit, where you have true love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. That's what it means to have a really fulfilling life. He says in this passage that if you're led by the Spirit, you'll be worshipful, right? you're going to be singing, you're going to be grateful, more grateful just as a person for whatever God brings you to life, and also you're going to be more submissive to the will of other people. That's the, the second sub-point here. The Spirit makes you worshipful, grateful, and submissive. They're good things. Want to be a better friend? Well, I mean, don't change the way you are in relationships. If you're a more submissive, kind, caring, loving person, I mean, all it's good. It's all good. There's no negative in walking by the Spirit. The only negative is if you want cheap pleasures right now, well, then I guess it's a negative for you. But it's not less fulfilling. Sometimes this thing goes out and it's common and we say it and there's truth in it that the Christian life is just so hard, so hard. Yes, yeah, sort of, except... The non-Christian life is harder, right? So yeah, the Christian life is hard, but it'd be worse for you if you didn't become a Christian. Galatians 5, 6 says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Some of you are like, man, I struggle against that though. I, you know, maybe you've um, had alcohol and you have a draw towards substances. Right? Some of you do, right? So wh- what do you do? Well, walk by the Spirit. It won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Here's a question for you. You're going to wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to make the most of my time. Are you going to wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to be led by the Spirit? Right? And furthermore, right now, because this text is all about singing and psalming, I want to sing one more song. I'm going to call the band up right now. We're going to sing one last song. Uh, but let me pray real quick as they come up. We'll sing praise one more time to the Lord right now. Let's pray.
God, we trust your word is true, that every word of God proves true. You know, it's a shield to those who take refuge in it. I pray this morning that we take sin seriously, that we'd seek to walk by the Spirit every day, that we keep what your word says in mind about substances, and we'd avoid the allurement of them by just avoiding them altogether. I pray that these students would walk in a way that's pleasing to you as this whole sermon series has been about. I'm thankful that you've transformed many of them in their hearts and they don't seek they don't seek this sin anymore. So I'm so thankful for that and I pray that um, all of us would seek you more and we'd walk wisely making the best use of the time. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.